Let's get some TV. Pull your pants up, black people. I was on TV in the 80s. <laughs> I can talk down to you because I had a successful sitcom. Yeah, it was great women, Bill Cosby, so... This October 16th marks the sixth anniversary of comedian Hannibal Burris's off-the-cuff comment about America's TV dad. The comment went viral and put into motion the coming forward of 60 women to tell their stories. International media attention, lawsuits, changes in the statute of limitations in California, a sexual assault charge, a mistrial, a guilty verdict, and ultimately, a three to ten year prison sentence. Justice has been done! And we're very, very happy and proud of this result. Beginning in late 2014, we be- the accusers of Mr. Cosby, whom I represented, began to speak out. It took a great deal of courage. In the beginning, many were not believed. We are so happy that finally we can say women are believed and not only on hashtag MeToo, but in a court of law where they were under oath, where they testified truthfully, where they were attacked, where they were smeared, where they were denigrated, where there were attempts to discredit them. And after all is said and done, women were finally believed, and we thank the jury so much for that. Lawyer Gloria Ulred rejoicing in the guilty verdict. That moment on April 26, 2018, was the culmination of years of accusations against Cosby. I didn't think anybody would believe me. It was Bill Cosby. It was Dr. Huxtable. I thought I was the only person that he did this to. Who's going to believe me? Andrea Constant originally thought she'd keep her encounter with Cosby quiet. She states that while working as a Temple University employee in 2004, she was invited to Cosby's nearby home where he gave her three blue pills. She soon lost consciousness and woke up later with her clothes in disarray. For a year, Constant says she told no one until she had a dream. I woke up and I had a bad dream. And that dream was that Mr. Cosby would do this to somebody else if I did not say or tell someone. So I woke up crying and I said, Mom, Mr. Cosby drugged me and he sexually violated me. Constant then reported her incident to the police in 2005, but it would take 12 years for authorities in Pennsylvania to file a criminal charge against Bill Cosby. It was that charge that eventually sent Cosby to prison. However, Constant's case was originally dismissed, citing a lack of evidence. With no criminal charges, Constant decided to file a civil lawsuit against Cosby that included 13 potential witnesses who were simply named Jane Doe at the time. The case was settled out of court and it seemed that Cosby and his team were able to quash the allegations and continue promoting his wholesome public image. Years later, former model Beth Ferrier revealed that she was Jane Doe number 5. Ferrier says in 1984, after a brief affair with Cosby, he drugged her coffee and she woke up hours later in the back of her car, dishevelled. But when she tried to tell her story in 2005, she experienced public backlash and was ultimately silenced. The National Enquirer told me 
that they would only publish my story if I took a lie detector test. I did, and I passed it. To my surprise, National Card did not publish my interview and instead ran an exclusive interview with Mr. Cosby where he denied all allegations. I received such fierce backlash when I came forward in 2005 that I had to change my number several times, lost relationships with my family and friends. I've recently learned that Mr. Cosby admitted in his deposition in 2005 that he did not want National Choir to publish my story because it would make the public believe that maybe Andrea was telling the truth. Another Jane Doe also tried to tell her story at the time of the lawsuit, with some coverage but very little public notice. Barbara Bowman says that in 1985, when she was 17 years old, she met Cosby while starting her acting career. She says that he assaulted her several times under the guise of being a father figure to Bowman. I was given this incredible opportunity to be with the, the, the biggest, you know, a celebrity in the world at the time and who was known at the time as Dr. Huxtable, the most trusted man on, on earth. So, yes, so um, I was under a lot of pressure and I certainly was in no position to um, uh, go telling my story when I was told I wouldn't be believed and when I did tell, indeed, I was not believed. Around the same time in 2006, supermodel Janice Dickinson also spoke out on the Howard Stern Show when she was promoting her book. Bill Cosby was the only guy I couldn't write about in the book because HarperCollins was afraid of lawsuits. You're saying that the book company won't allow you to write about certain people? Too afraid. Too afraid of that one. Wouldn't touch that one. And I don't want to get near that because I don't have the shekels that you do or that Cosby does. Are you so I, I'm, I'm afraid something's going to come I out. I don't know anything just, about this. How, how did it come out? The guy's a bad guy. Let me just say that. He's not a nice guy. Welcome to the Know How Podcast special five-part series, Reporting Injustice. This is a series where we look at some of the key stories in recent years that were turning points in how we saw some fundamental issues. We talk to the journalists who uncovered them about their struggles to bring these stories to public view. And we speak to experts who explain how these reports altered the way society perceived pressing matters of race, class and sexism. From Windrush to Bill Cosby, Grenfell to missing and murdered Indigenous women, Reporting Injustice looks at the stories behind the stories. So, after years of failed whistleblowing, was it really a stand-up comedian's impromptu comment that brought Cosby down? After mostly ignoring the story, why did journalists begin to pay attention to the women coming forward? What was happening that motivated so many women to come forward after years of silence? And has society really changed in the way we treat survivors of sexual assault? In this episode, we explore the unravelling of the Bill Cosby case. We talk to the journalist behind the New York Magazine expose that featured 35 of the women's stories. We also talk to experts on how the story was treated in the press and how this case was the precursor to the Me Too movement. When I arrived backstage, Mr. Cosby greeted me and handed me a cappuccino telling me that he made me my favourite coffee. Thank you. And after I drank it... I felt dizzy and lost consciousness. I had a cold at this time. 
and he gave me a blue pill, which he said was an antihistamine with a double shot of amaretto. He was rubbing my neck and said that he might have to have someone come in to give me stress therapy. When I returned, we listened to the music as I sipped my Coke, and that was when things began to become blurry. I don't remember leaving the club. I don't remember driving anywhere else. Bill Cosby offered me a pill, and I took one from him. He then told me to take two, that it would be fine. And I guess I thought, it must be okay. Bill Cosby said it was. So I began to play a game of backgammon with Mr. Cosby. We were in the kitchen or dining room area at that time, and I remember telling him, this game isn't fair. And he asked me why, and I said, because I can't see the board anymore. And then I passed out. I felt woozy, and he told me to come into the bedroom and sit at the end of the bed. Beth Ferrier, Shalon Lasha, Sonny Wells, Janice Baker Kinney, and Autumn Burns tell their stories. Their encounters and others start in the 1960s and span until the early 2000s. Many of the women coming forward state that they were drugged somehow by Cosby, then woke up disheveled, not understanding what had happened. And I went through and was editing the transcripts and just looking at it. It was almost like um, the stories were already in conversation with each other. There, there was sort of um, the beats of the stories for many of these women were uh, were so similar, and they hadn't talked beforehand. You know, they all they met each other at our photo shoot, but it wasn't as if they, these were coordinated stories in any way. It just the the sort of chilling thing was that there was a method, and they had this shared experience. When journalist Noreen Malone was tasked with telling the survivors of Bill Cosby's assaults for the New York magazine, she realised that the women were perhaps from various backgrounds, but that Cosby had a modus operandi. As was said in the Bill Cosby case, a number of the victims said, "Who would you know, he told them, who's going to believe you? Many of the women in the Bill Cosby situation were likely thinking that this was some bizarre thing that happened to just them. And to find out there were so many other people just like them. Um, I think that was really, really powerful. Camille Gibson, a criminal justice professor from Prairie View A&M University, explains why it took so long for the survivors to realise they had similar stories. The end of 2014 marked the moment when dozens of women were coming forward for the first time and the press and the public were starting to connect the patterns in their stories. This was met with both public support and backlash. Some celebrities came to the defence of Cosby by trying to discredit the women coming forward. Comedian Damon Wayans. Some of them really is unrapeable. When you look, I look at them and go, no, what? you don't want that. And former Cosby Show co-star Felicia Rashad. What I said is this is not about the women. This is about something else. This is about the obliteration of legacy. And Whoopi Goldberg. I've been accused of a lot of stuff, and I've had friends that have been accused of a lot of stuff. And one of the things that getting accused of a lot of stuff when you're famous does is it opens the door for everybody to come out and say, and me too, boss, and me too. It's like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Goldberg later retracted her statements. Gibson explains how for all the women to come forward to face such a backlash took courage, but there was an extra layer of burden for the women of colour because Cosby was held in such high esteem for so long. I'm one of those persons who never would have imagined, based on 
who Bill Cosby has been. I was, I was like a lot of other people as a fan of the Cosby show. He's the image of the perfect middle-class black successful father. So uh, for black women in particular, I perceive that this has been extremely difficult because even after the reported 60 plus cases and his conviction, there's still many people who believe he was framed and it's not real. Um, I've been in circles with educated folks and often older people who refuse to believe that this is something that these cases actually happen. So there is that backlash for a number of women of color because he has meant so much to the black community, America in general, but to the black community. Besides public doubt, journalists trying to navigate interviewing survivors of sexual assault often fell short. Even with good intentions, the questions were at times insensitive and propagated harmful societal myths that victim-blamed survivors rather than hold the accused responsible. Here's CNN's Don Lemon speaking to Joan Tarshis. You said he was he made you perform oral sex. Right. You, you know, there are ways not to perform oral sex if you oh, want to do it. Um, I was kind of stoned at the time, mm. and quite honestly, that didn't even enter my mind. Mm. Lemon later apologized for asking why a survivor didn't stop her assault with her teeth, but he also asked this question of Barbara Bowman. So after the, after the initial time you spent, you said Reno, Nevada, you also went to, I believe, Atlantic City, yes. and you put yourself in a position to be close to him again. What, was that naivete? Was that youth? Why would you do that? Janice Dickinson was also asked questions that put responsibility on her for trusting Cosby. Why did you feel like you trusted him? Because of his demeanor and the promise of a career. Dr. Jennifer Hummer is an assistant professor at Utica College who researches news portrayals of sexual assault and the silencing of survivors. She says that many survivors choose not to come forward, especially in big cases like Cosby, because they know they will not just be questioned, but doubted and possibly re-traumatized. I think how the media handles these stories is a is a big part of that when we have characterizations of women as, you know, putting their claims in doubt, positioning their claims against the, you know, he said, she said of, of the, the man or the accused in question. Um, all of these things, you know, how stories around how police have handled it all play into the decisions that people make in, in the best interests of themselves. Even in the Cosby story, like how many women's testimonies had to be to be out there and 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 held as worthy against you know one man's story so we're still seeing that you rarely see just a one against one like a a one accuser versus the accused you know it's like 20 or 30 (laughs) women's stories being held up against one man's denial for noreen malone it was also a challenge to convince her publication that this was a story worth telling but there was initial nervousness and it wasn't even necessarily we don't want to take on Cosby actually. New York Magazine is pretty brave about that kind of thing um, to its credit. It was more from an editor who, you know, I think he would he would admit to this. He was sort of an older guy and, and um, really smart, great editor, but he was sort of at first like, I don't know, what's the story? What are we doing that's moving it forward? They've already come out. Like what are, is this going to be tawdry? And it, he took some convincing, but to his great credit, 
when he was convinced, he was all the way convinced, championed it and pushed it to go bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, and I should also mention the editor of the project, Lauren Kern, who's a fantastic editor, really fought for it. Um, other editors there, David Haskell, who's now the editor in chief, fought for it. But like, again, it was like, you'd rather have someone at the beginning be like, are we sure? Then get nervous at the end. And at the end, yeah. there, was, there was the opposite of that. It was like, how can we go harder? How can we scale this up? Once she had the necessary support, Malone and her co-collaborators began in late 2014, early 2015, to conceptualise how a story like this could be told in a way that would be survivor-focused. The photographer for the story was Amanda Demi. The photo director of New York Magazine is a woman named Jody Kwan. And in addition to having sort of impeccable taste in photography, she is a real journalist and she really views the world that way. Um, and she had noticed the tabloids had sort of been covering the Bill Cosby story all that fall and sort of maybe um, winter. Uh, and she was sort of clocking it and thought it was really remarkable. And the thing that really struck her was her sort of visual eye was just the range of women who were coming forward to accuse him of, you know, rape or sexual assault, all ages, sort of all kinds of diverse backgrounds. And she proposed a project where we would um, photograph them all in a photo portfolio. And, and then it sort of grew from there. Camille Gibson speaks about how, despite the shortcomings of journalists, it does take courage to cover powerful Hollywood men. It was no small thing for the journalists to write those stories. Because remember, these persons, Weinstein uh, and other individuals, were quite powerful and threatened the journalists, the, the female journalists who dared to write these stories. So that's another part of it, because no doubt people had details before, but for whatever reason, it, it didn't become public. So their courage is an important part of us turning that corner. And once those major individuals were held accountable. For Malone, making her story survivor-focused was made more accessible by the fact that so many women had come forward in the previous months to tell their story. I was very nervous going into this. I hadn't done a ton of reporting, you know, with women who were accusing people of rape or sexual assault. I, I you know, I called a couple of people I knew who, who were experts in this kind of reporting um, and got some tips from them. And then when I started calling the women, for the most part, this is not entirely true, but for the most part, they, I, I, all I had to do was sort of ask a question and sit and listen. Like they really, really wanted to talk. And again, this was a very self-selecting group who had already come forward. I'm, I would not be surprised if there are still women out there who were assaulted by Bill Cosby and have not come forward. By making the piece survivor-focused, Malone could shift the ongoing societal narratives about survivors. That was the other key move, making it about the woman and not about Cosby. He's the famous one, but we're not putting him on our cover. We're not making him the focus. And that is the tabloid treatment, right? You're not going to, in the supermarket again, or like on TMZ's homepage, you're not going to click on something where you've never heard of the person, right? It's all about celebrity. They have nothing to gain. The allegations that they're doing this for attention and money... What, what attention and money? I'm, I'm not seeing that at all. You know, I don't perceive this as anything easy for them to do. I, there is that stigma still that women experience if they talk about these sorts of victimization. And folks still blame women when they become victimized. Hummer adds, the news coverage, like the New York Magazine, 
is starting to take place because of survivors coming forward and activists like Me Too founder Tarana Burke changing public discourse. You can see that in the, the push that many women activists made to ensure that there were expanded legal definitions of rape, to increase awareness of things like acquaintance rape, date rape, um, to change language around who can be a victim, you know, whereas 30, even 30 years ago, well, and, and in many cases today, um, a lot of our knee-jerk reaction is to find fault with the victim, you know, whether it was what she was wearing or how she was behaving or this kind of insidious notion that, well, um, of course she would put herself in this position to, to gain some sort of career boost from it or, you know, what, what have you. And so I, I think it took decades of activists and journalists and um, increased exposure to women's narratives and, and stories to start changing that in society enough so that we could actually hear and receive a story like this in a more uh, indignant way than, than perhaps we, we were receiving it 30 years ago. And for the Cosby survivors, there was solace in each other. I grew throughout the process through word of mouth, sort of within this community. And also just during that time, other women did come forward or, you know, and I think there was sort of a snowball effect. You know, no one wants to be the only woman sort of doing this, but you know, once they heard, oh, so-and-so has done it, or, oh, we have 12 people on board, or we have 18 people on board, and here are some names, then it became, I think, an easier decision for them. And there were people who decided not to do it. At the last minute, we were reaching out and trying to get more and more and more. Um, And I'm really glad we did, because it feels definitive in a way that it might not have if it were, you know, simply that beautiful uh, photo, photo, set of photo portraits in that cover, but like now there is sort of a compendium that feels authoritative. After months of work, the story broke on July the 26th, 2015. I remember being sort of alone in my apartment because it hits on a Sunday night and checked Twitter. And I was prepared for a lot of negativity and a lot of sort of like, you know, if you when you're a woman who writes about sexual politics or something in that zone or gender on the internet you tend to get a lot of sort of trolly stuff and I hadn't you know I've written about gender and sexual politics for a long time but not quite on that scale and I was sort of like all right well this is gonna be the thing where all the trolls come out and I was so shocked that that didn't happen that was the really amazing thing for me about this maybe like one or two emails of people who were like well how could you take down Bill Cosby but the I actually really see the reaction to that as a moment when something shifted, that the reaction was, oh my God, these women are telling their story. And it was really like a, an almost universal reaction. And there was so little of that trolling. The story immediately attracted media attention. New York Magazine's powerful new cover. A show of unity against comedian Bill Cosby. Here it is on the cover of the New York Magazine. The cover features a black and white composite image, 35 portraits of women allegedly assaulted by Bill Cosby. I also think that it's not a mistake that it, that it began as a visual idea because I think putting it on the cover with all of those women lined up um, just made such a strong statement that even if, you know, my text alone could not have done that, right? It, it was... It was 
the image of oh my god all of these women right rather and and if you were just scanning a page they wouldn't be sort of in human form that way and putting it on the cover and that image sort of ping-ponged around twitter right away um i think that is truly what made it break through what it actually allowed for was for them to really be heard right right like so many of these women had told their stories before in earlier eras of media um and you know bill cosby had a powerful lawyer who was able to sort of get behind the scenes and change some stories or you know you might pick up a people magazine and see a story but if you don't happen to pick it up in the grocery store that week like things didn't go viral necessarily and this time cosby and his people didn't try to stop the new york magazine they did not respond to any of our emails they just didn't want to deal i i don't know what that strategy was but no we did not get pressure not to publish we just got a sort of you know, we're ignoring you kind of thing. A significant part of the cover was the 35 women sitting on chairs facing towards the camera with dignity. There was an also an empty chair. The empty chair was meant to signal, you know, not everyone feels comfortable coming forward. There's someone out there who has maybe had a very similar experience, you know, just doesn't want their picture up here. And then it also, I think, functioned and people saw it this way as like an invitation to come forward, like come sit and tell us your story. The empty chair continues to symbolize that despite the progress, there are still setbacks. We can start with a bit of progress that gets celebrated and a whole bunch of attention. And then inevitably there's, you know, there's some sort of backlash or, or backsliding um, as uh, the rules of the game shift or the players involved shift shift. And, um, all that progress that we worked towards um, or felt that we had achieved in that one moment can feel so far away. Um, And I think one of the main challenges in that instance is to maintain um, hope and energy and the status quo are are what is um, rewarded by our, our lack of energy and diligence. And we just can't become complacent. And so that's how I've, I kind of make sense of the last five, six years is, you know, we had this one, great push for justice this one you know specific context in which it was received and of course here we are now seeing you know similar stories of of powerful men you know donald trump of course comes to mind where justice is nowhere to be found and um it can appear hopeless but that's just that's the course of any social progress or social movement is it it never is a, a linear path it always ebbs and flows and we just have to keep up the energy even after his conviction the bill cosby case continues in june 2020 the pennsylvania supreme court granted cosby the right to appeal his conviction thank you for listening to the know how podcast and the first in our special series reporting injustice it was presented by Dr. Lindsay Blumel and Dr. Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information, please go to our website, thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at knowhowpodcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast. In our next episode, people had been sacked from their jobs or um, told that they would have to pay tens of thousands of pounds for cancer treatment, even though they've been paying taxes in in this country for 40 years. Some people were made um, homeless. We talked to the journalist who uncovered one of the biggest stories in the British media in the past few years, the Windrush Generation scandal.